0: Contained within this episode of Approaching Lightspeed are examples of body horror and existential dread, but there are no major spoilers for the Revelation Space series, so if you are not familiar with it, then welcome. There's a lot of romance and intention and excitement behind a statement like, I'm going to start a science fiction podcast. But then the work begins, the work of sifting through all of that science fiction and trying to figure out which of these stories can serve as a decent crash course for a person who is just now dipping their toes into the genre or might not be familiar with all the craziness that goes on within books and short stories and whatnot because when you're confronted with such a pantheon of masterpieces like tixcalon or the expanse or foundation you know where do you even begin well that's the question right and i think i finally answered it in what in hindsight Hopefully was the obvious way. And that was to start with the series that got me to first start paying attention to the literary aspect of science fiction. And that is Revelation Space, which was written by Alastair Reynolds. The universe he presents to us is one of the most delightfully grotesque and chillingly indifferent ones I've ever read in space opera. And it contains a pretty decent amount of scientific accuracy that keeps things surprisingly grounded. There's so much absolutely insane and terrifying imagery throughout the series that really sticks with you. And I figured what better way to start a discussion about it than to talk about one of the coolest ships in all of science fiction. Where Star Wars has the Millennium Falcon and Star Trek has the Enterprise and The Expanse has the Rocinante. Revelation Space has the Nostalgia for Infinity. It is a gigantic unsettling and deeply troubled ship that is indicative of all of the things that make the Revelation space universe great. But before I get into it, I actually want to establish a kind of baseline or or context for the universe against which this ship flies, because I think the two topics really appeal to each other's mutual interests. In the Revelation space universe, humanity has developed the technology to travel at a hair's breadth of the speed of light. And while that's nothing for someone like you or I who lives in the real world to scoff at, the fact of the matter is the speed of light is inconveniently slow when we're dealing with the cosmic distances Revelation Space does. The fact of the matter is it's going to take decades to get from any one destination to the other. And news propagates at such a slow rate that it's years decades, even a century out of date by the time it gets from one end of civilization to the other. The setting is characterized by these somewhat isolated pockets of humanity who have all evolved and developed uniquely and separately from one another. So the backbone upon which this fragmented human civilization functions is this class of colossal cone-shaped ships called Lighthuggers. They're essentially these humongous... they're, They're basically cities that are masquerading as ships. I think you'll find early on from even the earliest pages of Revelation Space that the pervading philosophy of this series, aside from nihilism is cool, is go big or go home. Everything in this series is titanic. And the light huggers are no exception. Each of these ships can reach up to 4 kilometers in length. And part of the reason for that size is because the resources that go into interstellar travel are extremely demanding. We're not going to be seeing any kind of, you know, 10 to 20 crew, small to mid-sized ships making the journey from, say, the Sol system to Delta Pavonis. Because it wouldn't really be feasible to miniaturize that kind of technology. Any place where people are going are not receiving a trickle of immigrants and visitors. They're experiencing waves of tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of people landing on these planets and arriving in these systems. Because transporting things and people in bulk, and trust me, bulk is a pretty big understatement here, is the most efficient way of doing things in a universe where light speed, or I guess slightly slower than light speed, technology is kind of hard to come by. And that's partially why so many of the outlying settlements or colonies might not receive many visitors is because the resources involved in getting a light hugger from, you know, the more civilized areas of space to the relative backwoods might not be worth it because, A, there might not be many people wanting to go there, period, and what hugger captain is going to divert this huge resource-intensive ship for just the whims of a few people? And B, the colony in question might not have enough things to trade to really justify the journey. So in effect, this means that there's a ton of places out there that haven't been visited in centuries or even since the initial depositing of people on these planets. And that's kind of what I'm referring to when earlier I was speaking of a very fragmented and sort of isolated human experience so basically a big part of a light hugger's identity is its cargo space its capacity to carry stuff whether that's things to start colonies or goods to be traded or humans that are locked up in reefer sleep caskets which are the revelation space equivalent to cryo sleep essentially but cargo transportation isn't the only consideration behind the making of one of these ships. Basically, every other element of the Light Hugger's design philosophy is dedicated to getting it up to and keeping it safe while at light speed, or close to light speed. And the perfect space frame for doing that is probably not what you would expect. Even on the cover of the book, and I know... That book covers don't necessarily reflect what's on the inside. But on the cover of some editions of Revelation Space, there is this somewhat normal-looking ship. It looks like a futuristic version of something NASA would make. And it has a sort of habitation ring spinning around the midsection. But that is very much not what is described in the pages of the book. Lighthuggers look Very different from a lot of the other ships in science fiction. Because in order to traverse the interstellar medium, you need a hole shape that is sharp and sleek and cone shaped so that you can kind of just slice your way through. A good comparison for what one of these things looks like is think of one of those, those jousting lances that knights would use in like Game of Thrones or the Renaissance Fair and whatnot. Think of like the general tapering shape of one of those, but attach two giant engines to either side, scale it up to the size of some people's commute to work, and then imagine it flying through space. That is a light hugger in general. Also, of note when we're talking about the appearance of these light huggers is this layer of ice that covers the entire forward section of the ship. And the reason for that is. When you're traveling within a hair's breadth of light speed, the forces at play are utterly catastrophic and are very much not to be trifled with. An impact from basically anything, even a micrometeoroid that's the size of your fingernail, is going to unleash an unbelievable amount of force upon anything it hits. And it turns out that ice, or at least an extremely thick layer of ice, is a pretty decent very cheap and easy-to-find way of protecting against such impacts. The ships also have lasers that can shoot down incoming debris and scanners that can sort of warn the ship and execute emergency maneuvers to avoid such debris. But when those measures fail... The ice shield is usually sufficient to just tank those hits. By the way, there's a great short story involving a chase scene between solar systems in which a pirate-converted hugger has its ice shield whittled down by laser fire from its would-be prey. Once it does inevitably get hit by a micrometeoroid, the ship is just blown in half because its armor was compromised. And of course, all of this unfolds in like the blink of an eye, and the protagonists end up having to look through camera footage to figure out what in the world actually happened. So yeah, it's all a very unconventional science fiction ship design. But don't you worry, it only gets weirder from here. The ships of this universe achieve their top speed using these super advanced and mysterious engines called conjoiner drives. Nobody really knows anything about the conjointer drives aside from the fact that they were made by this sort of reclusive coven of cybernetic humans known as, you know... Conjoiners. But other than that, nobody has any clue how to build more of them or even how they work. It's actually a plot point in one of the later books that the conjoiners just stop making conjoiner drives and this just grinds ship production all across the human volume to a screeching halt. We learn early on about the dubious origins of the conjoiner drives and everybody's general ignorance thereof. And that's sort of Alastair Reynolds's first clue that there's this fundamental eeriness about these ships. It's almost like, even though humanity is advanced enough to build such technological wonders as a starship that's four kilometers long, it's almost like we're contending with something that we don't fully understand just in interfacing with and piloting them. I mean, everything from their strange shapes to their enormous size and the demented programs that haunt their networks and the equally demented crew members that run amok throughout them it all kind of gives this sense of forbidden knowledge so to speak a part of that uncanniness no doubt comes from the fact that light huggers are basically capable of shape shifting they can rotate entire sections of their interiors to compensate for thrust gravity or the lack of gravity they can sort of shift their rooms around. It's not very unlike the shifting staircases we see in Hogwarts and Harry Potter. And in addition to this, they also possess these manufactories dotted throughout the ship that can pump out anything from weapons and vehicles and ship parts to entire buildings. And some of the more advanced models are even capable of producing actual human clones, Mind you, it wouldn't be Revelation Space if these clones weren't often used for depraved and sadistic means, but the fact of the matter is the ships can pump them out nonetheless. They can pretty much pilot themselves too. I mean, 99% of the time, the human crew's basically a redundancy. There's whole chapters where there's only one or two people awake on one of these gigantic ships, even though it's not only active, but also careening through space and they hardly ever even have to lift a finger because the ship just has everything covered for the most part. But when a crew is needed, there are none better than the Ultranots. They're essentially this branch of humanity who has radically altered their bodies using cybernetic augmentations so that they can better live and work in space. They almost never leave their home light huggers and usually know their ships inside and out. Alistair Reynolds describes them as... The Borg from Star Trek if they took an unhealthy interest in goth subculture. And if that image alone isn't enough to get Revelation Space some kind of screen adaptation, I don't know what is. But in any case, the Ultras are a deeply suspicious lot. I mean, they're insanely paranoid, not just of outsiders, but even members of their own crews, and power struggles amongst them are pretty much a staple of the series at this point. Most Ultras are fine, ordinary people aside from their appearances, but the ones that aren't go way off the deep end. If you decide to pick up the series and you see the name Queen Jasmina, just know that you're in for some really weird times. So that about does it for the average Lighthugger, and I know I spent a lot of time going into what normal looks like for these ships, but that's because we're about to shift gears and take a look at what a twisted haunted house version of one of these ships looks like. We first encounter the Nostalgia for Infinity through the eyes of Triumvir Ilya Volyova, who is one of the three leaders of the ship's crew. Out of anybody aboard, she's probably the one that's most familiar with the Nostalgia for Infinity's inner workings and layout and machinery. And it usually speaks volumes when time and time again she tells the audience that she really can't grasp the true depths of this ship. For example, she estimates that there are 1,050 decks, but she also admits that there could be way more for all she knows. Our initial tour of the Nostalgia for Infinity is rife with this unnerving sense of foreboding. We learn about whole districts that haven't been seen by humans in entire centuries and others where the robots have gone crazy and will mow down anybody who's unfortunate enough to find themselves there and others still that are completely flooded with radiation. Where light huggers are normally filled to the brim with passengers in this form of suspended animation called reefer sleep, the nostalgia for infinity is notably empty. Rather than the tens or hundreds of thousands of people that are usually aboard a light hugger at any given time, the Nostalgia for Infinity is home to Voyaova herself, five other crewmates, a captain who is, for all intents and purposes, probably dead, and an army of these cybernetically augmented rats that serve as a kind of maintenance force. Other than that, as far as we know, the ship is completely devoid of life. Honestly, it's almost like the Nostalgia for Infinity is a... Eldritch horror in and of itself, because it seems like every other character that boards it goes insane, or is insane to start with. In fact, in these first scenes that we have with Voyova, we find out that there was this crewman that she was onboarding up until now, who inexplicably lost his mind and is currently at large throughout the ship with presumably violent intent. The only reason this isn't treated as anything other than a distant worry is because of just how vast the interior of the ship is, as well as the fact that he doesn't have control over its systems the way that Voeova does. But I think my point stands as far as the unnerving effect on the psyche this ship has goes. But killer robots and roving madmen are... Just a rounding error compared to the absolute destructive potential that is lurking within the deepest catacombs of the ship. Because contained within the Nostalgia for Infinity's cargo holds are technological terrors that would put even the Death Star to shame. And there are 40 of them. These are the aptly named Hell-Class cash weapons. Each of these things are a completely unique weapon system, and their individual capabilities vary wildly from one to the next. Voliova spends a fair amount of her time trying to figure out what in the world these things even do, but it's more than apparent that even the weakest ones are fully capable of obliterating a planet, and it's speculated that the stronger ones are even capable of damaging suns. And by the way, each of these things is only a prototype, implying that the final product was going to be even worse. And to complicate matters even further, these weapons literally have a mind of their own. Each one is powered by the most bloodthirsty of all AIs that are stewing in their own private insanity. They're all just yanking at the chain and waiting for an excuse to pull the trigger. Just like the conjoiter drives, the cash weapons are these conjoiter built devices that our characters know precious little about. The ones that are contained within the Nostalgia for Infinity were found a long time ago in some out-of-the-way, unremarkable asteroid. It turns out the conjoiners were terrified of the power of these weapons and stashed the ones that they did make away so that they would never fall into the wrong hands. I mean, it's not like they were wrong to do so. If anything, they didn't go far enough because, lo and behold, the current possessor of these weapons is a person a little less worthy than most. The twisted and deranged funhouse halls of the Nostalgia for Infinity are... Little more than a reflection of the mind of her captain, John Brannigan. And I mean that a little more literally than you might think. As you're probably gathering is a theme for this series at this point, the origins and past of John Brannigan are almost a total mystery. We have little more than rumor and conjecture to paint a picture of what this man is all about. Some say he's one of the most heavily augmented ultras in existence, to the point where he can even breathe in vacuum. And we have reason to believe he's committed a number of atrocities over the course of his very long life. And speaking of long life, he's of an age that's considered to be miraculous even by the crazy standards set by this series, in which people regularly live to be like three or 400 years old. It's estimated that John Brannigan, at the beginning of the first book, is anywhere from six to 700 years old. The implants and augmentations that give him these abilities and have allowed him to live for so long sound all well and good, but man, did they come back to bite him when the Melting Plague emerged. The outbreak of the Melting Plague is considered to be one of the major calamities in the history of Revelation space. It's an event that ended this 400-year-long golden age called the Bell Epoch basically overnight. Millions of people have died as a result, and society has almost collapsed in certain places because of it. So what is the melting plague? Well, the melting plague is this disease of, you guessed it, unknown origin that targets nanotech. An important thing to realize about Revelation Space is that most of the advanced technology, including a lot of the processes that go on within Lighthuggers, are completely dependent upon nanotech. And this also includes stuff like buildings or the implants found within human bodies. That means if you or I caught the melting plague, you know, unless you're hiding some super advanced nanotechnological augmentations I don't know about, we would be fine, but the same can't really be said for most of the inhabitants of the Revelation space universe who do possess such implants. Which means that the plague has a crazy rate of transmission. When the plague does come into contact with nanotech, it sparks this uncontrollable spasm of multiplication It's turned entire cities into these gothic hellscapes in which the nanotech in the buildings have twisted their architectures into something that look more like trees than anything humans would make. And as you might imagine, the effects of the plague on the human body are just horrific. I mean, you gotta feel for most of the folks who live in this universe. Imagine living under the threat of this virus that if you contract it, The nanotechnological upgrades inside your body just expand until you're this deformed and exploded statue of what used to be a human. And, of course, you're dead, but, you know, the process of getting to that point is probably less than pleasant. It's not uncommon to see human corpses embedded and assimilated into their infected surroundings like these awful, macabre sculptures. And that's the fate that awaits John Brannigan. And the only reason it hasn't come to pass yet is because his crew acted quickly and locked him up in a reefer sleep casket. To keep the plague from consuming both the captain and the ship, they keep his body temperature just above absolute zero. But it's made abundantly clear throughout the book that this is only ever going to be a temporary solution. When we see him through Vojova's eyes, he's little more than this disgusting gray blob that's just kind of been splattered across one of the bulkheads. There's very little in him that's recognizable as a human anymore. And his only contact with the outside world are these primitive brain scanning devices that let his will be known to the very few who will still listen. Aside from those super infrequent interactions with other people, I can only imagine what's going on in his tormented and probably very bored mind his affliction with the melting plague is the catalyst that gets this whole revelation space situation rolling and his crews seemingly desperate need to find a cure for that disease as impossible as insane a goal as that may be is a central element to the first revelation space book Their drive to accomplish this combined with the unthinkable weapons in their possession is a recipe that can spell disaster for anybody whether they be a person or an entire planet that stands in their way. This doomed quest of theirs will unfold over the course of decades and it'll take them to the very outer limits of human civilization where they'll encounter Lovecraftian terrors that'll make something as simple as the melting plague look like a walk in the park. And they have to do all of this while wrangling a ship that seemingly has a mind of its own and whose intentions are probably very much at odds with those of the crew. And when all is said and done and when the smoke finally clears, it might just become apparent that the strangest changes to the nostalgia for infinity are still yet to come. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Approaching Lightspeed. I really appreciate it. The production of this podcast thus far has been such a challenge for me in the way that learning any new skill is, but it's also been so rewarding and I'm extremely excited for whatever comes next. It's always such a pleasure talking about Revelation Space and I have so many fond memories of annihilating my sleep schedule during college because I'd be up until the wee hours of the morning just plowing through hundreds of pages of the first book. I definitely want to revisit this universe sometime in the future. I really want to touch upon the different human factions that populate it, as well as the super unique aliens that Alastair Reynolds has created. I mean, they're deserving of an episode in and of themselves. If you notice any inconsistencies with the audio quality in certain parts of this episode, that's because I recorded bits of it before I purchased certain equipment. And I hope that won't be an issue in future episodes. Speaking of which, next episode comes out in two weeks, and it'll focus on a topic that you're probably a little more familiar with, but you're going to have to tune in to find out what it is. As always, the beautiful artwork and the music that bookends each podcast episode was made by Alex Shamas, who you can follow on social medias via the name Shamanist. But that's going to do it for me, so I hope you have a lovely rest of the day, and please stay safe. And farewell. Until next time.